Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Westwood One Podcast Network. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello there, Team Never Quit Nation. Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. My name's Andrew, joined by Marcus, joined by Morgan. What's up, brother? What's up, guys? We were excited to have Chris Duffin on today's show. This guy... It's insane. Yeah, okay, this. Co-owner, coach of Kabuki, Strength Lab, and a Guinness World Record holder for the most weight deadlifted in one minute. And apparently he's got the most craziest childhood story. Yeah. I mean, it's not the craziest, but it's it's, it's not something you, you wouldn't expect it. I didn't, I didn't see that coming, yeah. blindside. Yeah, I mean, I've read, I read his story before we interviewed him, but it didn't get into what he gets into today. So right. you're going to love it. Patreon question of the day comes from Nathan, and he asks, for Marcus and Morgan, 1911 versus the Glock, please, for the love of God, in the debate. Yes, I know, probably won't, but let's give it a shot. There are, there's a reason why we are, uh, there's a reason why there's multiple different guns made, and there's a, right? It is all about user preference. However, comma, I'm going to beat Glock up, because the Glock representative showed up at the team one day to try to pitch it to us. And in the in a community we we carried SIGs. I prefer 1911 over Glock, and I'm going to tell you why I don't like Glocks because he was going through the weapon system and how and how user friendly it is. And I was in the back of the class and I raised my hand. And I was like, "Sir, can you?" I was like, "If you come off a dive in 39 degree water after six hours, and there's a weapon malfunction in that system, can you break it down?" And you can't because of the detent, the breakdown. Pins are so small. Freaking hand shake. It's just it's an acute movement. And you can, <laughs> oh, it's just terrible. I, and 
I've never been a Glock fan since then. They train us out of. It's not that we're not Glock fans. It's just like we don't use those for that particular reason. And no, it, I'm not uh, a Glock fan. Well, yeah, <laughs> I like a hammer. I like a. I like a, I like a, a decocking uh, uh, lever. We don't do those fine motor. Like everything with us is big. Yeah, because if you're going to a pistol, you're you're in, you know, it, it, yeah, all it's, it's it's bad, bad. Now for the for the average user, someone who's never going to come out of a dive to use either of these firearm systems, is there one that hey, gonna use so that thing? I, I, hey, look, you know, it, I mean, there's everything. It's when we'd go through this, man. Someone's like, hey, what's the best pistol? I was like, go down to the range, get every one they got in different calibers because your hands are different, fit different. I mean, but you remember, so, okay, so. The just the Glock itself. It doesn't have the hammer. It doesn't have the safety mechanism. It doesn't have the dual safety with the with the, the webbing. Trigger. The webbing plus the like that idiot that fired that Glock off in his pants next to us. Mm, that was a good one. Okay, with a nineteen eleven, <laughs> you have to grab a hold of the weapon. So uh, for an ex- very experienced shooter, okay, I can understand you know either way. But for someone just that is unfamiliar or or, or, or not an expert shooter in handling a weapon system 1911s are much safer as well yeah i think it's been around forever it's true for a while anyways but like you said every gun is really i mean in some ways there's safety features obviously in different guns they're gonna be different but i think i've got 30 pistols and i still haven't found one i like yeah there's gonna be a personal preference like i've i've like i don't even like my Concealed handgun. Well, I don't think you're supposed to get right to now. like your gun that much. Hey. No, but I was like, like you just <laughs> hey. spent too much time with it. Look what Daddy did get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what'd you get? Head to toe, a new Kimber 357 pistol. Nice. Why is it gangsters always? Why don't gangsters use holsters? Is it a joke? Why? No, I mean I just oh. watch TV and I always <laughs> notice that cops <laughs> use holsters and gangsters don't. Gangsters is that don't. so they'll know the difference? There's some dudes putting them big old fifties right in there, fifties right in the front of pants. But like, I would, yeah. Quick accessibility. I don't know. I mean, there's that guy on YouTube. Holsters are uncomfortable myself. though. Yeah, Shoots I bought this. I bought this wheel gun. I mean, I couldn't hit you from here. Dad used to have a nightmare about that. Remember with it that 38 yeah, special. I had that, I had that same nightmare. <laughs> Figures. It's more of just this <laughs> thing is so loud. It's loud like, when I mean, it goes I mean, off. Oh. It's just a deterrent, so I can run. I just all oh, just fire blank rounds out. I think it's so damn loud. 1911. Go with that. Now he gave you only two options. I know. Sig. Sig. That's my, that's my preference. It's a toss up between Kimber and Sig, but since I use Sig in the military, that's my that's that was my fallback. I like a Kimber. I like them both. I got both of them. Yeah, I got all four of them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't carry one in the water. I don't carry one in a. Yeah, it depends on. That's why you have multiple. Yeah. Depends on what so you're going to do. I couldn't carry. I can't carry my other gun when I'm wearing my Wranglers. Because it's too snug up top. Too so snug. I put, yeah. You're supposed to wear it on the outside. Uh, yeah. ah, that right. that leather holster. Yeah. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> Cowboys. That's outside. why they do that. It's in the outside. That's why they do so you that. know right so where it's at. So That's tight. why Gus and Woodrow never wore them on the inside. I, I know. Pants are too tight. He's got a gun. How do you know? Because it's hanging right there by his knee. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, thanks for asking your question. If you guys want exclusive access to the show, bonus behind the scenes content, join us on Patreon. You got some awesome content you can get there. You got a whole community there. We got some cool swag for our Patreon community. That's the only place you can get it. Join us at patreon.com slash team never quit. Let's get to the interview with Chris. First of all, welcome to the show, Chris. We're super excited to have you, man. Yeah, excited to be on. Okay, I'll start it out with this random question. How many chickens would it take to kill an elephant? Mm. That's a lot of pecking, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably about 500 chickens to kill an elephant. 
500. All right, now we got the numbers out. All right, what advice would you give yourself if you could go back and talk to yourself at age 13? Holy shit. Uh, um, That's what I would say to myself, too. (laughs) Stay (laughs) by. You know, you always think that uh, you can go back and try to improve things and live live life a little better and avoid some of your mistakes, but I I really don't want to avoid any of my mistakes or really do anything different because I wouldn't be here right now. So... I think uh, I, I think I'd probably just hang out and observe myself and never never actually go say anything. Uh, stay the course. That's a good answer. Yeah, you wouldn't end up where you were today if you if you do if you try to do that. All right. So I got a question because Marks and I both are covered in in tats as well. Um, so your body art, in my opinion, is strategically placed in the pain centers of the body. Right underneath your chest and down through your spine. I'm curious if you put those specifically there because of your love of pain. <laughs> that 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 is a good question. I pick some uh, some pretty nasty spots: rib cage and sternum and spine. In lip, spine, my my armpits. You know, like inside oh. my underarm, all that all that stuff. Like I I, I don't know. It just had to go there. Which Honestly, one got you? Was, which one got your attention the most? <laughs> well, uh, the the, uh, the Ouroboros took about forty hours, and I did that in four straight sittings. And that's where uh, that is. So that covers my entire upper body. So that's the one that covers the starts goes across my chest, sternum, yeah. under my under my pecs, inside my armpits, um, uh, under my arm, like all that, and. Uh, that one got me probably the worst because I was sitting for eight or nine hour sessions of getting those areas done. So it wasn't just like a couple hours of, of, uh, hitting the rib cage under the arms. It was, uh, it was eight, nine hours and then come back the the next day and do the same thing. And the next day and do the same thing till it was done. It was strategically placed, but it was so that I look like a Viking King when I'm off, when I'm shirtless on camera, which I happen to be a lot. So, um, yeah, I I remember just why I was watching some of your videos, and I just remember thinking that I was f- front sight focused because I have a spine. Marks and I both have spinal tats, and um, I remember walking in there one day to and and sitting down, and he hit my back with that gun. I was like, I'll come back. Next Two week. seconds. I'll come back. I'll come back. He's like, yeah, like no, no, I'm not. I mean, sometimes you're just not feeling. I'm it. not in the mood. Man, uh-huh. they started when they started going on my in my right arm on went in the well right there in the crease of the elbow. Yep. I, I, I was like, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> hey. And then uh, <laughs> on my forearm, I was when I was getting the red horseman. Man, that thing swelled up, and I was like, oh. God, but I mean, it's big. Well, as you, I mean, as big as you are, still, man, underneath your chest, that, underneath the chest, oh, right on the rib, right yes. across, because there's nothing there. There's right. nothing like that needle feels like it's going through your on rib the bone. cage. <laughs> yeah, right on the bone. And the other one, one of my armpits, uh, it was, uh, I had two pec uh, reattached. And so there's massive scar tissue. And we literally went like hours, like all over the scar tissue that's in my armpit. Like that was no fun. Yeah, I got one of them too, boy. Like about, back in the day, probably had tattoos started coming up to cover scars, right? Because people thought yep. scars, you know. All right, that was, we may circle back to the tattoos again just because I, I find that I find that interesting. All right, brother, what do you like to do when you're not doing nothing? I'm never not doing nothing. So uh, I got that problem I, too, uh, man. That's why I was asking you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, man, I'm not doing nothing. What do you do? 
I, uh, you know, my, when I'm not lifting weights and spending time with my family, I, I really love either building my four wheel drive rigs or, or getting out in the mountains and, and, uh, and wheeling. But unfortunately I haven't done much of that in the last few years. So, uh, I am almost done with my next, uh, off-road build. So pretty excited about uh, getting move on that again. That's awesome. You do rock climbing or, or is it, uh, just straight mud? Um, I, I prefer rock climbing. You know, it's a, it's a lot more technical, Buddy, yeah. a lot more, a lot more damage can be done with your, with your, to your rig, unfortunately too. But the, the one I'm building right now is pretty epic. It's, uh, 40, it's got 47 inch tires on, Whoa. uh, four, four wheel, full four wheel steering, uh, two, two, uh, two full steering systems, central tire inflation, custom unimog axles. So the lowest point of the vehicle is like as high as my knee, um, four doors, front and rear AC, tunes, all that, all, you know, so it's nice and comfortable too at the same time, <laughs> right. but it's, uh, it's designed, it'll, it'll bomb through the desert doing Baja type stuff at a hundred miles an hour, or you can switch to doing the most intense rock crawling around with it. So it's, uh, it's a very, very unique build. And I, I built it, uh, four doors with the amenities so I can, uh, take my whole family on doing trail rides and stuff like that as well. Or, more epically, dropping my kids off at school in the uh, ultra liberal yeah. uh, yeah. uh, Port Portland schools. So no, no question be, on who's that'll rolling be entertaining. up. <laughs> what, what kind of chassis did you say you had on it? It's a it's a Dodge Durango chassis. Sounds a little odd until you see. I built a tubing roller to make the uh, the exo cage in. It's got an exo cage and an internal cage, but it's got these beautiful swooping lines that I was able to do with that, and it fit the body really well. There's a build on Instagram just for it, so you can check it out. Oh, Duffin's War Rig is, is what it's called, but it's uh, it's it's pretty one of a kind. I'll put it that way. I'm sure all of that building lends itself to the the degrees that you have. You got and you stood. All right, I I was unclear on it. You in the aerospace career field? How did that? I mean, not to jump ahead and jump around. I just that popped into my head. So I want to ask you right now. You have an aerospace so, background, correct? Uh, aerospace, uh, automotive and high tech is where I spent, uh, most of my, most of my industry experience. Oh, so, so you're one of underachievers. Yeah. Being, yes, just being yes. average. So, oh, okay. Cool. Uh, just so, average dude. So I, I pursued a dual engineering degree and an MBA and then ended up, uh, uh, coming in and developing on the leadership front and then running, running a lot of those companies doing turnarounds, things like that. And yeah, I, engineering reported up through me as well and, so yeah, everywhere I've worked has been a pretty highly engineered environment, but, uh, yeah, automotive, aerospace and high tech were like where I spent most of, uh, that 18 years I spent in that, in that world. Well, let's back it up a little bit. Uh, a lot of people come here cause we all go through the hard times and the, just the person going through it, the, the situation may present itself similar, but I mean, we all kind of got to go through these, these tough times. I mean, how, when you were born, how'd you start out? Tell us a little bit about your family. Well, I was, uh, my parents were very intelligent individuals and they just didn't want to be, particularly my mom, want to be part of society. So this is kind of coming out of the sixties, early seventies. And then I was born in the late seventies, um, where there was a group of people it was just North of, uh, San Francisco area. And, uh, my mom just, we ended, we ended up just living in the mountains, and so, you know, living in tents, living in some con condemned buildings or, you know, uh, a house that hasn't been finished yet, 
foraging for food, killing animals, you know, the, the type of, the type of homelessness where you're filling up a gallon jug of water down by a stream so you can set it on a rock during the day. So it'll warm up so you can dump it over your head to bathe. Uh, I, uh, start off my book kind of with the story of like me at six years old, I was being taught how to catch, handle and kill rattlesnakes by myself. Six years old, you know, I'm sitting here with live rattlesnake wrapped around my wrist, staring into its face. And, but it was important. It was important that I knew how to do it, knew how to control my fear because there was rattlesnake dens all over and we lived just, our beds were beams lashed into the trees and we had the bedding up on that so that uh, snakes couldn't get up there at night. And that's, that's, that's the type of, you know, upbringing that I had for most of my younger years. Um, when you're in those types of environments, man, you, the, the other people trying to escape from society, usually there's reasons there for, for some of them. Sure. So you run into lots of drug abuse, uh, drug running, certainly, which that's kind of what my parents were involved with. Murderers dealt with a serial killer, um, human trafficking, like all sorts of really fucking nasty shit when I was growing up. Uh, the state ended up taking us for a while and then, which was uh, definitely not a, not a pleasant experience, you know, just getting ripped away from your siblings. I had three younger sisters and a younger brother and your parents and stuffed into a home somewhere that you have no idea who these people are and no contact with anyone in your family is, uh, yeah, I would say not, not particularly enjoyable, uh, experience, especially when you're like young and people, you know, your friends or family members have kind of died around you and you're still like trying to process some of that. And, but, uh, my parents ended up getting me back or all of us back except for my brother. And we end up in Oregon and they decided to, uh, you know, growing weed was no longer the, the option. We quickly fell back into mountain living, either logging, then eventually might, you know, independent mining. And so same, same, same thing. And finally, finally by like high school, uh, my stepfather won this disability case and he was able to uh, get a down payment on a mobile home, which was like this major event in our life. Now, mind you, the mobile home when we moved out was burnt down by the fire department because it was unlivable. But for us, <laughs> it was, it was amazing. Like electricity, running water. It may not have had doors. It didn't have a kitchen, you know, it didn't have stuff like that. Um, so we, uh, you know, we took some two by fours and framed up a sink so we could have, you know, something of a, a kitchen and brought in a stove. But I had like this really stable environment ish, uh, through high school as far, at least a living, you know, I wasn't no longer living in a trailer down by the river or sleeping in the back of a truck, you know, with a foot of snow on the ground type experience for me that I dealt with a lot of at a lot of the time leading up to this point. So did you go to school or did they did you just educate out in the field? I went to school. So these were a lot of really small communities. You know, some of the areas I went to, you know, I had a class of like three people, but uh, schooling was really important, and so was reading. So we did a lot of 
like I said, my parents were really intelligent, really well-read. My father was a member of Mensa. My stepfather was really highly intelligent, well-read as well. And like, that was our thing. We would go to the library, like once every month or two months, we'd go into the big town, whatever was closest and just get stacks of books about everything that we could find. And, you know, sit there either by candlelight or, uh, or flashlight at night, you know, reading late, late into the night. And so it was a lot of mixture of both. I found school really easy. Uh, well, I guess that was a, I guess that was a good thing. So I ended up getting a full ride. I was really good at sports as well. I was supposed to go to college uh, as a wrestler, but I ended up getting a full ride scholarship for just academics only to go to, uh, to engineering school. And I decided that might be the best option for me since, you know, I had no financial resources and I knew wrestling wouldn't really lead to anything like, you know, uh, something that I could rely on for the rest of my life. So, so I made that decision. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, see that I mean, coming. When you come up, grow up. <laughs> I was, okay, all right, right on. Um, I'm a, I don't know if I missed it. How were you when that when you guys finally got into the uh, the trailer house, and then how long did that last? Uh, got into the trailer house basically my first year in high school, and so that, uh, so I was there for four years. Then I moved out to go to college, and see, things so living, got so living in a dormitory. I mean, you finally ha- probably have your own bed for the first time and then, and then able to take a hot shower. That's got to be mind-blowing. <laughs> I couldn't stand it, actually. I moved out. <laughs> Why? I moved out of the dorm the first term. I don't know. It was too many people. It was too much going on. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. uh, so I got a roommate. Uh, I lived in a really cheap town. It was in uh, Klamath Falls, Oregon, so really low cost of living where I was going to school. And... Uh, I uh, moved out, got a small, small place and, and did that. I also was not really highly engaged in college, I guess you would say. I found it just super easy. And so I ended up starting to work full time and kind of focused on just like my life and lit and, uh, and, and work and school kind of rode in the background, even though that was supposed to be the primary thing that I was doing. Well, but unfortunately, like things fell, fell into worse shape at home. Like my mom had a mental breakdown, ended up out in Montana and my stepfather, he wasn't really capable of really taking care of himself, let alone his three daughters. And so they ended up basically being on the streets or in care. And before I was finished with uh, school, I ended up having to start take uh, custody of them uh, one at a time. So, you know, here I am, 21 years old. I've got custody of one of my sisters. I bought my own house. Uh, I was working on my second engineering degree. I was working full time as a, uh, I started actually in the windows and door field. Uh, I was working, I was running up a, uh, uh, a third of a, this manufacturing plant, had about a hundred employees and three managers working under me. So I had a, I had a little, a lot going on at that point in time. And then I ended up uh, you know, as I, as I, I finally picked up stakes and moved to Portland, Oregon so I could pursue my MBA. And that's where I took custody of my second two, uh, to siblings. And so I ended up raising my three sisters through all of their teenage years while I kind of got started with my career, finished up my education. And, and, and that was, that was, that was my life. 
Did your parents, what, what kind of direction did they push y'all in? I mean, I know that education was important. It sounds like that's kind of in your DNA, just getting in there and reading and decoding it. I mean, did, did they say, hey, we're doing the engineering thing, or did they just free will? I, I never really had much of a direction. I was expected to do well in school, uh, and that was just kind of an unwritten, unwritten rule. But here's an example. There was one time I was, I was in fifth grade. And my mom comes to me and she says, hey, are you, do you have any interest in going to church? And I'm like, oh, oh we're going to go to church. Okay. I'm like, yeah, sure. I, I, that sounds interesting. I'll find out about what's going on there. She's like, great. So she drives me to the church on Sunday and drops me off and leaves. <laughs> and that goes on for about six months. And she, uh, and finally, just me, finally, she, she asked me, she's like, uh, do you want to keep going to church? I'm like, nah, I, I think I learned what I needed to. I, I know what it's about. And, and uh, she's like, good. I talked to her about this a few years ago, and she's like, oh, yeah. She's like, I just wanted to have you the experience. And so you could make a decision on your own about your own life. But literally gave me no, no direction, no push. Like, you should go to church. You shouldn't go to church. You should – like, it was – uh, a prime example of kind of the parenting that I got really, uh, which was, I mean, there really wasn't much, uh, direction. They expected me to go to, you know, go to college. I, I mean, I was valedictorian in my high school and, you know, a state level athlete. I, I was, I, I was overachiever, right. But there was definitely not much, uh, beyond that, you know, um, Mostly it was, you know, education around being true to your own morals, being true to yourself, like trying to do the right thing, but not, not really any much about like how to succeed in life. Uh, and honestly, they didn't know much about that. So I, it, I, I guess I don't really have what's anything the else age to separate? say. No, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah, no, spot on. The, what's the separation in your siblings age-wise? And are they, are they all still, I mean, what do they do? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Um, my, uh, well, my brother, who's the one I, I, I wasn't able to have an influence on. So he's in San Quentin right now. Yeah. He's three years younger than me. My, so my three sisters who I did have an influence on, um, and was able to, to be involved in their life. And, uh, like I said, I ended up, uh, taking care of them. The oldest owns a resort in in Central Oregon with her husband. Uh, it's kind of a uh, a lake and a you know camping and boating type thing. Um, the uh, uh, the second uh, she just had her first child, by the way, which was awesome. Congratulations! Yeah, congratulations. This last year, the one behind her is another year behind her. Uh, she lives in Central Oregon. Uh, she does a lot of. She's just kind of floats around a little bit. I mean, she lives in the same town as my mom and helps my mom with her mining claim and just really is all about she's kind of like my mom and wanting to live an off-grid lifestyle. You know, she lives out in the middle of nowhere. Town's got a population of 100. It's an hour and a half to the nearest grocery store. You know, they they have their own chickens and rabbits and a giant garden and just kind of live a very minimalist life. Uh, her and her husband, and she just had her second child, which she, uh, her first one was actually when she was living with me when she was 18, but, um, she's doing pretty well. And then the youngest, 
she's another they're they're all a year apart her and her husband uh they they own their own businesses so they uh they've got basically a cleaning uh, uh a cleaning and maintenance business that they run and so they work with some of the in this resort town and and manage manage the properties for the event hall where they put on music and some of the businesses around town and all that that they uh they 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 they, they take care of those facilities for those people. So that one's a miner? Yes, uh the second one's uh does mining. That's hard work, man. So, <laughs> I mean, that's great. My sisters are hilarious. They're they're all these ti- very tiny individuals. So um the the tallest one I think is like 5'2" to give you a perspective. Like a picture of them next to me is funny. But they are they're they're country girls. They're beautiful women, but you go out in the mountains and they got a 44 on their hip and they'll outshoot anybody and they <laughs> go awesome. And like it's uh it's pretty hilarious when I bring my 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 farm boy friends out in the mountains and they meet them and they're like, "Holy cow. I went shooting with your sister. Don't ever mess with her." I'm like, "Yeah, I told <laughs> I told you." And they're like, "I've never seen anybody like that." I'm like, "That's that's my family." <laughs> And so hearing how you started out coming up, um, I mean, one of the reasons people come here is to hear our guest's greatest never quit stories. What, it, what What's one of the hardest, what's your greatest never quit story if you coming up the way you did throughout your life? I mean, I got to hear that. My greatest never quit story? Yeah, I don't, the hardest you've ever been it hit. Can be, it can be present day or it can be, I mean, shouldering three siblings at the age of 21 in college has got to be one of the most memorable ones. But Or 1,700 pounds. That's one of squat racks. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I can't say that I really have, uh, uh, because that has been, I mean, I've been on my whole life. There's never been anywhere that I've got a fallback plan, you know, growing up, I really early on, I realized, Hey, if I fail, like there's no couch at home, I get to go, go crash on between jobs or, or anything like that. Like I'm out there on my own, no matter what the heck I do. And I've got to pull this off and I got to make it happen. There is not one major event like it's just a continuum in my life of being able to push because it's like I said I, I grew up homeless to being, you know, turning out to be, you know, this corporate executive who was sought after, brought in to like turn around and sell companies and grow them from a, a regional to a, a national to international presence or something of that nature. Like that's a huge scope. And then like in my late 30s. To just walk away from that and say, hey, I'm going to start a business from scratch, become an entrepreneur and do my own thing. And then, you know, that was five years ago and I've got four businesses in my portfolio now. And starting that from scratch with nothing, that that was a pretty tough time. I was actually going through a divorce in the middle of it. And I, I, I seek chaos, I guess. I seek, <laughs> I seek the struggle and... I do not have one single story to to share that really outshines any of the rest. No, we've had people like the guests like that. That's their whole life is just one. I mean, it's it's not failure if you don't have anything to fall back to. So if you're you're just standing in the moment, and each one of those are designed to keep pushing yourself. I mean, never stop living. Right? Seize the day. If every yep. if every day is a brand new one, get after it. Yep. I mean, just for example, like just the lifting side of it. I I started lifting in 1988. I'm turning 43 here shortly. So I've been lifting for well over 30 years. I have so many like major injuries 
nerve damage, muscles ripped off the bone. I'm currently missing a hamstring while I squat this thousand pounds like uh, regularly. I, I, and there's so many people that I've seen go by the wayside, like this new and up and coming person for, you know, and it's just like staying there and working through every battle, every injury, and still staying at the top of my game for, for that length of time. Like when I was competing in powerlifting, I was ranked number one in the world for eight years straight in one discipline or another. And now I'm pulling off feats of strength and going for things that nobody has ever done ever before. I, I know I re- said ever twice, but whatever. <laughs> it drives the point home. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, life is a struggle. Carrying that, the, it, it, the it weight is. you life carried is... in the very beginning. I mean, you, you said you started working out in 1988. It doesn't sound like it sounded like you started working out a lot earlier than that. Because the, the lifting that, to strap that much weight on your back and try to carry it around, I mean, that takes a determination and a grit that, what do you, I mean, what, what drives that? What do you tell, what are you telling yourself? Like what pops get, in that head? Just fixing to ask you, what, good Lord, what are you looking for? I mean, that much weight. <laughs> I mean, I, cause like one of our guys like David Goggins, man, he, he runs and you're right. Chaos is a, a real thing in order for the, the good side to exist, the calamity and everything has to exist. There's people who live in that. And if you live in it long enough, it becomes a part of you and you thrive in it, especially if, when it shows up. And in- let, let me ask this. Do you, do you either, do either you guys go to the gym? Yes. Every day. And uh, not like you. No, no. <laughs> what yeah, no, I'm not like that. Like what? And, and going to the gym is stress. It's stress on your body and you adapt and you get stronger. Right. What happens if you quit going to the gym? You get weak. You get soft, you get weak, the process of atrophy starts to kick in. This is the process that leads towards death. So the ability to take on challenging events in your life and come out a stronger and better person is in fact, that is truly living. That is living to your potential. That's discovering yourself uh, and knowing your limits, your capabilities, because unless you're testing yourself, you have no idea who you are. True. And you have no, you have no ability to grow as a human being unless you're challenging yourself. We only got one life. I say, fuck it. As humans, we're trying to find comfort. Comfort is the devil. Comfort is the process. That is when the, the decay and decline starts happening. Now you do have to have rest. Just like if you go in and do eight hours of CrossFit every day, seven days a week, you're going to freaking well, you're going to die. Like <laughs> your uh, body's yeah. going to fall apart, right? So it's a it's a balance of of those two, but you have to chase these things. So that's like that's part of the message I, I I try to drive home to people is, you know, we need to start looking somewhere else. You need to find the thing in your that makes your gut twist up in a knot with a little bit of like fear, anxiety, but also a little bit of excitement. Okay? It's just like, you know, the first time, you know, when you're younger, before you had, uh, you know, your life partner and you're sitting there with your friends, you're like, God, there's a, there's somebody over there I want to go talk to, or, Hey, I'm dating somebody and I'm I'm scared of where this is going, but you want to live it. You want to grow. And at some point in our lives, we kind of fall away from that. But those are the things that change your life that really bring living to the forefront. And it's, it, it is. I mean, I, I, I'm making a philosophical argument, but I'm not. This is a proven fact. As human beings, we only grow and adapt to stress. We only adapt to stress, physical, mental, emotional, 
what have you. And if we don't have that stress to adapt to, we get soft. We get soft physically. We get soft mentally. We get soft emotionally. So I proposition that people need to find those things that they're afraid of and chase those things. You need to practice being in this state because guess what? Life's going to come at you regardless anyway. Okay. And something's major is going to happen and you're not going to be mentally or emotionally or physically prepared for it. It could be your father dying. It could be you getting sideswiped by a car and losing a leg. It could be any number of things. Think about people that you've known that something like that's happened to and they freeze up. They lock down and they're completely unable to like make decisions and move forward because they've gotten, they're not used to being able to respond in that environment because they haven't been testing themselves. I don't care how old you are. If you get into a situation for the first time, you're going to respond like a child. That's just the way it is. And that Mojo, when I talk about that in the beginning, the fear lets you know that you're supposed to go, you're not trained for it yet. And even some of the guys, like the fighters and everybody, are like, man, I've, I've been doing this for how, like, up teen years, and I still get that same fear when I'm going out. I was like, well, it's actually anxiousness. That body responds, it's ready, like, it's ready to go. Like, the first punch is thrown, man, it's that fuel. I mean, if you, if you have a race car frame and you start to drive it like a minivan, it'll fall apart. I mean, there's some of us that go so hard and that will go, I mean, we just go into it that, that we're designed that way. And the minute you kind of try to come off of that, things start falling apart. Yep. I, exactly. I like the way you say, I'm going to use, I'm going to pawn this one off as my own. I, I'm, I'm just going to say that you, the only time that you're ever in your comfort zone is when you're sleeping. <laughs> Did I, I just created a one-liner. I'm going to use that for the rest of my life. The only time <laughs> I'm in my comfort zone is when I'm asleep. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm not working hard enough. So, so, you know, that's, that's kind of, I mean, there's a lot of, like my book covers a lot of ground and there's a framework uh, in it for helping people really dive deep and really understand like their values, how to set goals and then how to like, you know, incorporate that in your life. Uh, it's very much, a, 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 a practical piece, but one of the big pieces of it is, is really pushing people to help them understand that those challenges and obstacles in their life are not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, you should actually at times be seeking to find those things. Sure. Absolutely. Well, it's your it's your individual game. I mean, if you when you when you start any game, you can come in, you know, butt neck, you don't have anything. And as you go through life, you pick up all those little treasures and pieces and puzzle pieces and those are your friends and everything that goes with it. And uh I mean it it is, it's a journey. I got I got a question for you, brother. Hey, uh so uh, weightlifting for us went from a way of life to a part of life after we got out of the out of the SEAL teams. You know, I don't, I don't really kick myself in the ass like I used to, but you, you continue to yep. do that. And I know that in order to get to where you are at your level, you, 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 nobody can come in their first year and do that. It takes a lifetime of that sh struggle, if you will. At what point, at what point and at what weight was there a transition? You think they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going all the way. Cause I can't imagine how much what that pressure feels like. And if you could explain that to our audience, what in your, how that, in your opinion, what that feels like to have that much weight, either you're pushing it or you're squatting it or what or lifting it. What is that like? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was four years ago. I had been 
competing in powerlifting for about 16 years. And that's when I was making a lot of changes in my life and really trying to align things with what, uh, what my values were. And the sport of powerlifting just wasn't bringing, I was doing it because I had to, or I was expected to basically not had to, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't fun anymore. And that's when I, I said, you know what, I'm going to step away from that and I'm going to create my own things that I'm going to do that allow me to express myself in that, in that arena. Okay. And I said, I'm going to pick some crazy goals and I called it grand goals. And I, and I put a, a list in my phone of these, uh, these goals and I've been knocking them out one by one. But the biggest piece of that, yeah, was what I'm currently doing. And that was to be the first and only person in the world to squat and deadlift a thousand pounds. Okay. People have done it individually, but nobody has been able to do both. And then I said, I'm going to take it a step further. Not only am I going to do it, but I'm going to do it for reps. Three reps, three reps, right? Three reps. And, and so I did that for uh, three years ago. I accomplished the deadlift portion, and now I'm chasing the squat portion. Congratulations, by the way. And the training that I – thank you. Uh, the training that I have to do for it because, again, the, I said people have done these individually. They're, the, these guys weigh – five other people have done the deadlift – uh, over a thousand pounds. Nobody else. Well, somebody finally just did a double with it. Uh, uh, Thor or half Thor, the mountain from uh, Game of Thrones. He just did. It. He just did a thousand for a double. So that makes him the second person now. But all these guys are three hundred and eighty to four hundred and forty pounds. Did now, he do I'm that at the Arnold, I'm sorry. Did he do that at the Arnold Classic this year? Uh, no, that was uh, that was in training. Oh, okay. He, he just did it a couple weeks ago. Oh shit! All right, nice. And. So he's training to try to beat uh, Eddie Hall's uh, 1100 at the the Arnold Classic, which is coming up in a couple weeks. So I, I don't know how to explain like what it's like to be under that load, but I am training with like such a heavy weight so frequently. Nobody else has ever done this before because I have to do that because I just don't have this giant frame to work off of. I have to train more to accomplish it. So right now I'm averaging out 30 repetitions per month over 900 pounds. And it is such a demanding toll. I, I I'm down to, that's all I do is squat once a week and like, there's no accessories. There's no other stuff And the entire rest of the week is dedicated to rehab and getting me prepared. And if I'm not on point for one of those squats, I'll get into that bar and I'll pass out with it on my back. I'll go completely blank. It happens. And uh, I, I, it is I, – I have no way of articulating how brutal Jeez, the training I, that I'm it, doing right now is. I, I just don't even know. There's just no framework to, for me to explain to put it like, into perspective for somebody what I'm going at. Yeah. But it leaves me like, like completely and mentally and emotionally like – it's incredibly emotionally draining, like you, which you'd never think. Can you, but can you to do be me, able to lift? All right, can you do me a huge favor one day when you're doing this? I want you to take a blood sample before you get under the rack, and then in the other arm, 
after you come out, I want to take another blood sample and I want to do a comparative analysis to see what that, or have you done that? I haven't done that, no. Just to see what your body and how much of a different neural steroids, vitamins are in, blood cell count, testosterone, estrogen, cortisol, the whole stress, just to see what that looks like. Yeah, I got to, this may be totally, I'm a zombie. I'm a zombie for days after this. And, you know, sometimes if I get just slightly out of position, I may not be able to walk or stand for days afterwards as well. Um, to the point of like excruciate, most people would think they're done with their lifting career or need to go to the hospital or whatever it is. Unfortunately, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm known on the rehab side, you know, I particularly around spinal mechanics and recovery, uh, I work with the best people in the world and I know how to get out of that state, but it doesn't mean it's not like, it's not a pain in the ass right. <laughs> when you're in the moment and you're like, fuck, am I even doing this anymore? Is this the one that's going to be the one I, I can't get back from? And, uh, yeah, it's, it, my, my daughter, you know, she, she's been a- around the last few sessions and she's like, I don't watch you lift daddy. And I'm like, why is that? She's like, I'm afraid you're going to hurt yourself like the time you uh, lost your ability to walk, which I did. I got in a walker, had to do a full rehab. But uh, I'm like, don't worry, baby. Like, I always fix myself. I already did that one. <laughs> I mean, it's and, uh, unbelievable. And and uh, but it's it brings it home when your kid is like, hey, you're scaring me. Can you please stop? Like, so. uh yeah, it definitely brings that home. That, uh, that makes that stuff hard. Well, man, putting that much weight on your back and you're saying that you kind of got a euphoric zombie, it's dummy, like a twilight zone. Like you're literally stepping into a world you doesn't exist. With that much weight on a human? Like with us, when we go in in the beginning with, in, in training, they'll put an empty pistol in our hand, empty mag, everything. And then we just have to do these, these drills over and over again to where you don't even notice it in your hand. I mean, we're born, you can't even lift one pound. So, and then after we have the empty one and the, we get used to it, then they'll put a mag in there and then they'll put some bullets in there. And so when you pull that thing, your body's so used to it, it doesn't, it doesn't wear down. My, my question is when you're lifting this much weight, do you do it a pound at a time to where your body doesn't even notice it and you climb like a slow progression? Or do you just kind of just throw hundreds of pounds on there and lift till you, till it gets used to it? Uh, well, this has been over 30 years in the making. So. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and the specific training plan to get to where I'm at right now started four years ago and the the date was set for the final attempt a year ago uh and we laid out the training towards that now it's not exactly like the same movement the same whatever because there's a a lot of stuff in the science of you know how we adapt uh what type of you know movement selections we've got uh what qualities that we need to develop and so i follow a, a periodization approach uh, which is not just like changing sets and reps, by the way, uh, but, you know, very far out. So a year ago, we we're looking at what type of qualities I need to be able to maintain spinal stability, uh, particularly at the thoracic junction and lower lumbar. So a lot of movements really focusing on that, really developing that. And then the next training block, we're trying to maintain that while we're trying to develop the next set of qualities. And then I, I was squatting, obviously, 
but doing different variations because if you just squat all the time, at some point you'll quit. If you do the same movement forever, you'll quit getting the same amount of adaptive response. So it's really taking movements that are very far away from that. And then as we get closer to the, to the actual event, becomes more and more specific to what I'm doing. So right now I'm to the point of 100% specificity. But yeah, uh, so every, every session we're looking at my average load and we're trying to bring it up another five pounds over the last time. So you're 30, was it 30 pounds a year for 30 years? Gets you around a thousand point? Yeah. That's, is that yeah, your, that's your average, right? Yeah, I guess so. so you started lifting in 88 when we were 10 or 11 years old then? But you're not, you're not at that strength all the time. Right. No, so, that's your max effort. Like if you have to explode, you can push that like your body. Once you go under that pressure and your body feels it, I mean, if it hits if you put that on there again, it's got to know that what that is. It's it, it's not quite like that. So, it doesn't mean because 3 years ago I was a 500 pounds squatter, let's say. I'm just picking numbers. And I do a bunch of stuff and I'm still training. I could still go in and squat that much. It's completely relative to your training at the time. So I had been doing a lot of deadlifting leading into this, and I hadn't actually squatted for like a year and a half. And then, but deadlifting is the same. It's an axial load. It's a top to bottom load of the spine. So it's going to come cut co over really well. But the first time that I would max, I might only be able to do 850 pounds. Only? Yes, yeah, only. Good. Yeah. But it's not, but then over over being very specific for a month, rapidly that goes from 850 to 950 and then continues to go, go up. So it's – but I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't have the background stuff built. It, but it's not like any day I could walk in and max out at close to those weights. Like I still have to have a training plan to maximize it and get it there. Sure, pattern, There's a lot right? of neuro, yeah. neurological adaptation, other stuff that's going on, not just – muscles getting bigger and stronger like most of my training at this point is neurological based uh over like adding like i've been training for over 30 years i'm not going to put on 30 pounds of muscle you know this year i might put on a couple like two or three <laughs> what about so, your muscle density so the, the longer you've been doing this and you, you can carry that weight because it's just like just like steel i mean you keep hitting the body harder and harder i mean throughout the years it gets harder I mean, it gets stronger and oh, stronger. Yeah. So you're dead. I mean, most guys, when they go in there and they, in the gym, like the bodybuilders, they lift real heavy weights real fast. That's why they balloon up like that. Over time, you keep with that steady flow pattern, man, it gets dense. Like you're just gets so compact yes, it, and yes. tight. And yes, then when you come off that thousand pound or for a little while, which you should, right? I mean, it's kind of like your race car frame. I mean, we were, Morgan and I were watching that Ford versus Ferrari. And they put Ken in there, man. He would drive. He could tell you every single thing that was going on with the body and what it could take. And you push that seven thousand RPMs. There's a bliss, right? Mm -hmm. And with the weightlifting, if you come off of that weight and you want to get back to it, it's like climbing down the mountain. You got to climb back up it. You can't skip that part. You got to. But no. it, the the climb yeah. is the body remembers it. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, once you've climbed that mountain, you can climb it a lot faster the next time around. But you're not just going to go, hey, I hit that peak. I'm going to walk in a year later and be able to just start at the peak and go to the next height. You know, you still got to climb up. It may be a sprint that next time. And then, then you're at that same starting point. And now it's like, Hey, can I, can I go up from there? That's awesome way to explain it. Thank you.
Okay, let's let's shift gears. I got I got a, uh, a question. I'm gonna shift gears on you. You got to where you are today, and your just to your success, and your drive, and your motivations all predicated off of how you grew up. Is that an honest assessment? Um, you know, it's interesting because most of the a lot of the people that I knew are all either dead in prison or drug addicts that were around me. So you can't say because I was put in that environment, I came out this way, but without a doubt, those things I did use to fuel, you know, the drive that I needed to, uh, to be where I'm at in life. So, but you also, so, so yes, but also not, it's not a definitive, like, Hey, you throw everybody in a rough environment. They're going to come out great. Uh, it doesn't necessarily work that way, right? Usually it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Now, on the uh, the other end of things, I don't want anybody to really feel that, oh, you've got to have this, this crazy backstory or whatever to accomplish amazing feats. At the end of the day, it's it's the choice of who we are right now today. Like this is – you have the choice in your actions. You're not defined – like your past doesn't create you. The environment that you're surrounded in, these all have an influence. But at the end of the day, if you, you know, you could have horrific things happen to you. And a lot of people will identify themselves this way. You talk to somebody and you ask them who they are and they'll tell you about, I'm this way because I had alcoholic parents or I'm the guy that's got a bad back and I'm going to be in pain for the rest of my life. And these are kind of like self-fulfilling prophecies because those are things that happen to you. They're not who you are. And your identity is formed by your responses and the actions that you take, not the things that happen to you that you don't have control over. And really separating that, I think, is an important thing. And I like to make that distinction because it's like, well, I could never do that because I've never had this, like the same back, you know, background as you. Or uh, the, the other side of it is a lot of people being pity parties. Look at me, I can't do this because uh, because of this and this and this. And they use that to create their identity instead of like, the, that. that is not you. Like, get up and, you know, you decide what you're going to do with your life. And we've got that decision every single day. That's well said. Yep. I try to explain it to my kid, like, hey, look, it's like for when you're playing your video game, at the end of the, when you get done, you get to save the game. So at the end of the day, you save the day. So when you wake up, you get your starting point. If, if you if you don't learn anything as you're going through your day, you'll always start at, at the, re, the repeat cycle. When you wake up in the morning, I mean, everything you need is probably going to be around you to get through it. It is. It's your, the pity part is the worst. Like, hey, man, I couldn't do this because, you know, I got thrown this this hand. Well, you know, that's, that's like the way it is with anything. I mean, driving down the road in your truck, something breaks a window or you get a dent in it. That's just, man, there's no reason you say, oh, I can't drive my truck, got a dent in the door. Man, I just don't want to wash it. You know, my brother and I, it's like the SR vehicles. It's like, man, it just takes the functionality away from it. But it, at no point in time should it stop you. For all the, exactly. For all the parents so, out there, how do you, uh, what are you telling your, your little ones? I, uh, I, I've got a tattoo, or two tattoos. Yeah, we know. <laughs> and, and the first one is the eagle. And so that's the first half of the book. And I've got, and I had this done about 20 years old. So walking away from these really kind of crazy traumatic experiences through my, through my upbringing. And there's a, 
an eagle. And it's a, one of them's across my stomach trying to take flight. The other one's across my back trying to take flight. But each of them around, right around their ankle is a little shackle and a chain. And then that chain, if you follow, it goes all the way down to my ankle. And I had this tattoo done at 19, 20 years old, big 40 hour piece with the whole message behind it being, you can fly to whatever heights that you want in this world. The only thing holding yourself back at the end of the day is yourself. Yep. It's for people to, to understand. And it's really hard to, for some people to see that. That's what that first half of the book about is separating your identity from your environment and the things that have happened to you to creating your own identity through your actions and decisions. And that process of really finding your and discovering your strengths. That's pretty powerful, bro. <laughs> yeah. When you said that, I was like, hey, man, you got the, the you got two eagles on you trying to take flight and then you had to anchor yourself down to the ground so you didn't take off i mean because sometimes you put somebody as is and there's a difference between educated and your intelligence i mean like everything's kind of coded in there and as you read stuff throughout life it kind of decodes it if you will some mm-hmm. people who are born with the that intelligence they're also tapped with the lazy side of it and and then like with you getting thrown into that environment it had to have created you you said you wouldn't change anything and that's absolutely right you shouldn't I, I wouldn't like I look back like it's funny. I, I didn't really ha- start having these reflections until I had children myself and I'm sitting there watching my kids grow up and I'm I'm looking at them at the age they are. And then I'm thinking about the experiences that I was going through at the that same age. And I'm like, holy shit. OK, that was some pretty wild things that I was experiencing at that time. And it really like then thinking about my kids having to be in that environment was just incredibly saddening to me. Yeah. Like thinking about that yet at the same time, when I think about my life, I'd be like, man, I would not change a damn thing about it Yeah, because it has given me such this scope of ability to look at things because it's a rarity. Like it's not, my life's not worse than everybody else's or anything. We all have our own challenges and trauma but I've definitely been able to see a lot more scope or breadth in life than most people would from, from, from the experiences that I've had. And I'm like, that's really made me who I am in combination with a lot of introspection during the course of it. But while we're talking about, I'll finish the discussion on tattoos. So the second half of the book is the dragon. And so my second tattoo, it's another one takes about I spent 40 hours, I said, under the needle on that one, is a giant Ouroboros. There's a giant dragon on my chest, and his body wraps around my back and my arms and shoulders and comes back around, and his tail is in his mouth, and he's eating it. He's eating himself. It's uh, mythology for the continual renewal of life, rebirth, infinity, a lot of different meanings. To me, it means the purposeful purposeful reinvention of oneself. It is specifically, so it's not about like discovering your identity and finding your strength. It is specifically deciding who do I want to be in this world and becoming that person? How do I want to impact the world? Becoming that person. 
And that's what the second half of the book is because here I am, I'm, you know, I find myself at one point, you know, I had this crazy upbringing and I wanted to prove to the world, Hey, I could be a normal, successful individual. So I got a great job. I performed really well at the time I was working in, uh, uh, the automotive world and living in a white pivot, a house with a white pivot picket fence. I'm, I'm married. I got two kids. I'm like, I've made the American dream. And I look around, I'm like, but was it my dream? Like, it's not. I'm like, I'm missing something. I feel like stabbing myself in the eye every fucking day because I'm bored out of my mind. I'm not doing in the world what I want to be doing. And that's when I threw everything. I walked away from an extremely high-paying secure career where I was sought after to like put my life savings on the line and walked away from all of that to reform and recreate who and what I want to be and how I want to be impacting the world. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I, I'm still in the midst of chaos and strife with, you know, starting up businesses with, you know, literally no backing and getting them launched and out there and, but in four years, like I've penetrated nearly every major, you know, sport, definitely in America, if not the world, working with 500 different colleges, you name a pro team or a college team, like we're working with them. I work with 90% of the top MLB teams, like in just a matter of years, we're getting people healthier and better prepared and more resilient in reducing injury rates across the spectrum, uh, NBA, NFL, NHL. Uh, heck, David Beckham's soccer team just bought our stuff, like Tour de France, the it, Olympic, <laughs> Olympic Training Center, like everywhere. We're everywhere. This is specifically what I want to do in recreating it. I'm remarried to an amazing woman. I've got a third child now. And my life is filled with stress every day financially uh, with like all the business startups and everything going on and the chaos, and I couldn't be happier. I have, every day I'm able to show my kids that when they grow up, that they can take the world and form it around themselves and live it the way that they want as well. I don't have to have them read a book. I don't have to tell them a story. I show them it with my life every day. I've got love at home. I've got a team that I couldn't like uh, every part of what I'm doing. Every part of my life is aligned and I couldn't be in a happier place from, because of it. It's awesome, man. What? Well, I mean, your life kind of denotes that talking about that dragon re, when it eats itself, when you shed your skin, it's like you're not walking away from your career because you made that career and you, every time you shed oh. your skin, I mean, you come out, it's, it's, a, it's going to be a, soft, right? But then you just keep going and everything just keeps falling on. The pressure is because everybody around you trying to get closer and closer and closer. And, but, but I mean, you're spinning <laughs> so fast that, and you've been doing this that that's, that's the thing. A lot of the younger versions and everybody around you, they, that's how that works. So, I mean, as soon as that dragon and you sh gets done eating itself and shed that skin and you got those eagles waiting to take off. They got to keep your ass anchored to the ground with 1,700 pounds on your shoulders. <laughs> I mean, that's how freaking uh, hard you go. That's awesome. Yep. 
Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show today and sharing just a little bit of your story. If you'd like, would you like to plug your company, your book, your everything books, you've got going on right now? Uh, yeah. My uh, main company is Kabuki Strength. That's K-A-B-U-K-I strength.com. Um, my other businesses, Build Fast Formula, Performance Supplements, and Barefoot Athletics, uh, the human the ground uh, interface, um, are, are also out there. An easy place to find those is also where you can find my book, which also you can get a free audio download of my book for an Audible account. And I've got all the information on that on my personal website. And there's links to all the businesses as well. But that's ChristopherDuffin.com, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-D-U-F-F-I-N.com. Uh, I'm across, I'm all over social media. You can probably find me anywhere. Just type my name in, in to platforms. The ones that I interact on are, are Instagram and LinkedIn. So that's where you'll find most stuff. I really don't do anything on Facebook. I'm trying to figure out, uh, uh, TikTok and some of the other medium, but <laughs> Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, that's where, that's where most everything's at. Uh, we've got a pretty extensive YouTube channel as well that's been around for a long time. Um, so like I said, you type in Chris Duffin anywhere, or go to the websites, you'll find links to it. So what's your next thing you got coming up? I am, uh, so March 19th, I will uh, be squatting a thousand pounds, hopefully for somewhere between three to five reps at the San Diego Convention God Center. Jesus Christ. I know, right? So, three why, to why five you, reps. Why are you doing that? <laughs> that makes my muscles hurt thinking about it. <laughs> so that, yeah, that'll be uh, March 19th at the San Diego Convention Center. And this is uh, my, my big last final feat of strength. And there's, I mean, what do you do after that? Like, Oh, I you'll find something to do, I imagine. A lot, a lot. Yeah, yeah, man. I'm sure you'll be finding something to do. We'll be there watching. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing a little bit about yourself. And um, I learned a lot, uh, like we always do, man. The uh, That perspective and, and some of that wisdom you're dropping down is, is there for a reason, man. And everything you had to go through was for a reason to to make you the man you are today. So yeah, man, I would God bless you, dude. Thank sharing, you for doing sharing, your, sharing your childhood with us, that was powerful. God bless and, you, And so, and I, I do want to throw this out there. Every, every one of these uh, major feats of strength that I do, they're paired with a, uh, uh, a charity that I believe in and that we're raising funds for. So this most recent one is uh, we're raising funds for the uh, uh, Le Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. My business partner's grandson uh, battled that last year. And so that is something that uh, – so on the Kabuki Strength uh, website, we've got uh, – Grand Goals shirts that we're selling, 100% of proceeds go to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Foundation or Society. And you can also just donate directly as well. So anyway, just oh, want well, to throw that out that there. That makes sense. Yeah, I was asking you what that weight feels like to carry, and you said you couldn't describe it. Charity hurts. So thank you for carrying all that weight <laughs> for all of them that are suffering. That's yep. that's squared away, man. And those people are truly like they're, cover they're carrying the weight. You yeah. Know? That's, uh, yeah. All right, brother. Have a great day. Do the same. Be good, buddy. All right, guys, it's that time for a listener story of the day. And today's listener story is coming to you from Ethan. His story is never quit every day, continually improve. What's up, Team Never Quit? My name is Ethan, and I've been listening to your show for a little while and have been following Marcus for a while now. I read Lone Survivor back in 2013 and was super inspired. 
Your story and the Navy SEAL's way of life inspired me to have a change of mindset on things like bettering myself and striving for excellence in everything I do. I appreciate what you guys are doing here and love the message you portray in every episode. Mr. Luttrell, I've followed you for a while now and the inspiration you've given me is huge. Everything you've been through and have done for this country and the people of this country is incredible. I want to thank you for being an inspiration to me and for sharing your story. My never quit story has been a part of my everyday life since I can even remember. I'm a person who stutters. Stuttering affects about 70 million of the worldwide population, which is about 1%. Most people understand stuttering to an extent, but I would like to go a little deeper. For me, stuttering is a part of every second of my life. Every time I open my mouth or think about what I'm going to say, it's there. Imagine simply trying to walk from one end of the room to the other and have to constantly avoid obstacles that continually present themselves. That's a dumbed-down version of what speaking is like for a person who stutters. It is a constant mental battle with yourself to gain confidence to say exactly what you want to say, to use the techniques that I've learned to be a fluent speaker and to be able to get out of my comfort zone and do what I fear. That last point is the main message of my Never Quit story. I'm 23 years old right now and started speech therapy when I was 9. At the beginning, I could barely get through a sentence without blocked speech. I was shy, held back my personality, and avoided doing things because of my stutter. Through the years, I noticed steady improvement in my speech, but it wasn't until high school that I took a major jump in my fluency. That jump was a major gain in confidence. This came from a newly found determination to better myself and to not be controlled by my stutter. I did not want to simply quit on something because of my speech. I didn't want to not do what I wanted to do because of my speech. And I realized that when I did things that made me uncomfortable, such as public speaking or even as simple as raising my hand in class or making phone calls, that I grew so much. Every time I did something like this, I used things that I learned from my speech pathologist and continue to practice them every single day. My confidence in myself grew so much, and I believed that I could do things that at one time I did not. And once I got this idea, I never stopped. I kept challenging myself to get out of my comfort zone, to get to the limit, then go beyond the limit in order to grow and become a more fluent speaker. I never wanted to quit on anything anymore just because I'm the person who stutters. I ended up finding myself in positions that called for a lot of communication and speaking in front of people. In high school, I ended up being the captain of my rugby team in which I played a position that constantly had to be vocal. Calling out plays, barking orders, communicating with the referees. And then I majored in business in college where I had to present to classes sometimes as big as 100 plus people. This idea of doing things I'm not comfortable with and that I feared transferred to other aspects of my life. Whether it be from working out, playing sports, excelling in school, etc. I am driven to conquer the fear I had in things. I will never become a totally fluent speaker and I know I'll always have room to improve in everything I do. I'll always stutter and I will always struggle with doing the uncomfortable things in my life, but I will never quit. I remember reading Lone Survivor and reading phrases like, never quit, and the only easy day was yesterday, etc., and being inspired. I thought, this applies to me directly. When I finished the book, I realized that a few incredible guys can persevere through Hell Week, basically drown, come back to life, risk your lives for us and our country, put yourselves in the scariest places in the world, then I can beat the fear I had in myself. Keep doing what you're doing. You inspire so many people every day. Never quit. Ethan. Well, that mantra resonates right here at home with the with this group. I guess. And never say never. You said you never. I mean, that's I mean, amazing story nonetheless. But never say that uh, one day we will figure out how to f- cure stuttering. I mean, I was thinking about your greatest strength is your greatest weakness down here, attached with that birth. So as you're going through life, when you you didn't speak, I bet you're a great listener. And a lot of times when people do a lot of talking, when the response needs to be only a few words. And uh, I mean, Mojo and I had well, our eyes were messed up growing up. You know, you get attached to something at birth that on that affects you when you're trying to introduce yourself to somebody. Oh my! <laughs> I mean, it's just like what? 
whatever. My, you know, if you got a stutter man, just like, hey, he likes to take his time during his conversations. I mean, always look at it as a positive. And if somebody, your true friends will sit there and listen to you and talk until you get it out, until you go. And then you practice, and it's your biggest fear. And you put yourself in front of it. And then over time, man, it's just eventually what you're doing is you're capturing your voice. I don't know at what point I, I actually became comfortable with looking people in the face when I have a conversation with them because my eye would start wandering off. But you have to accept it like you did with your stuttering. And you just got to work hard to correct it. That's personality. Yeah, correct it in ways. I'm trying to remember his exact words, but he's talking about perfect speech or exact speech. We talk, That doesn't even exist. I mean, country folks, they make fun of us for talking slow and using that. They don't even know, but... It's all a rhythm. It's your vibration, man. And it's, it, as you get that down and your confidence pushes that out, your tone gets created and, man, you just, you never take a step back. Anybody who's tapped with something like that at birth, it's, I mean, never look at it as a setback and look at it as, as your training weight. And as you're pushing through it, I would say you're doing the right thing. And I worked at, with one of the smartest individuals on the planet at the National Laboratories under the DOE. Literally one of the smartest men in artificial when it came to artificial intelligence, and his stutter was so bad, you, it was almost hard. You couldn't understand, but it would take forever for him. And everyone, including the secretary, was sitting right there, riveted on what he had to say because even though his speech patterns were broken and slow, what he had, his output was so important because nobody else could think like that. Yeah. I mean, how many songs do you hear where you don't even know the words? You just know what, what, what was said it affects you a certain way. And that's, that's perfect, man. It's like, hey, man, they're not listening to how you say it. They're listening to what you're saying. Thank you for sharing your story, buddy. God bless. Never quit. Yeah, if you want to share your story, head over to the website, teamneverquit.com slash podcast. There's a share your story up in the navigation. And there you can read stories. You can submit your own story. You can encourage people that have shared their stories. Uh, I'm sure that there's someone there that's gone through something like you. We love it when you guys do that. All right, Marcus Morgan, what did you think about today's interview with Chris? I love it when he said, he's like, he hit the nail on the head when he's in his philosophy about how you have to stress yourself. And his only time is not in his comfort zone is when he's sleeping, but he's a better person because of it. Yeah, that's great advice from start to finish. I mean, it's kind of hard with the adversity that he faced from a child till, till now. I mean, people say they don't go work out. Life is a gym. The minute you get born into it, man, you, it, life is it's pressure and stress and mold you into certain ways. And then you got people who go into, into the gym to get a little extra weight strapped onto them. But at no point in time are you you're going backwards. If you notice, every day that comes by, we grow, you grow bigger and stronger and faster. Even if you're just sitting there, you're still growing bigger and, and learning something. Otherwise, you, wouldn't, you couldn't function. It's just how far you want to take that each day. See how far you can run. See what you can get and who you can meet. And then next day, do it again. My childhood, man. You know, you know, some of them guys, that smart man, they get tapped with, with a life like that. Like you said, they just won't do nothing. And then some of them, man, it just makes him not. He's got that mind and body. Pressure. Yeah, I like, I like how he said that, you know, he didn't want to focus so much on his childhood just because of the fact that he wants people out there to know that, like, you don't have to have the worst childhood to be able to accomplish great things. Yeah, he's surrounded by just adversity and evil is like, it doesn't define you. It doesn't yep. make you who you are. You make, you make your own choices. It's like statistically, yeah, people spiral down that rabbit hole if they're surrounded by those things. And he just, he's one that had just happened to persevere and he can, and that lends itself to his ability to articulate his point and saying, Hey, look, you know, everybody 
can be a victim. That's right. How many rabbit holes you go down where there wasn't somebody else in there? <laughs> I mean, I, you know what I'm talking about? I think so it's like, hey, man, you guys teaming up. We're all down here. Let's just, and everybody sets their own rock bottom. How far you want to go down it? That's exactly right. I mean, what kid have you ever talked to who said he didn't? He had an easy childhood? Yeah. It's all, t- doesn't everybody have a hard one? Yeah, I mean, some are harder than the other. It's really That's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, childhood's tough. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's just the way it is. Sucks for everyone a little bit different. Yeah, if you got an easy win, trust me, it's going to be hard when you get away from the parents. That's right. Hey, guys, if you want to get access to the show, if you're not following us already, make sure you subscribe. You can subscribe on iTunes or any other major podcast player. You can press the purple subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, and you can get the show every single Wednesday into your phone into your headphones, into your car speakers, into your home device, whatever, wherever you're listening to podcasts, we're there. If you're not following us on social media, we're at team underscore never quit. Marcus is Marcus Luttrell, Morgan's Mojo Luttrell. I'm Andrew Brockenbush on Instagram. And uh, if you don't have some sweet swag, some sweet merch, head over to the team never quit shop. We've got some new hoodies. We've always got autographed books. We've got such a, such a lineup of great, cool gear. And uh, like always, thanks for coming back every single week to listen to the podcast. We love it. Inspires us. Hope you guys love it too. Later. Later.